Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Thanks to you at home for joining us tonight. Alex is off this evening. She will be back next week. We're going to start the the, uh, evening with breaking news out of Texas, where a Trump-appointed federal judge has issued a ruling that will have an impact on the lives of nearly every person in this country. Why do I say every person? Because it's about every person who can become pregnant, everyone who cares about every person who can become pregnant, anyone who cares about access to federally regulated drugs. Pretty much everybody's got a stake in this case. It revolves around the first of two pills that are used in medication abortions. Mifeprestone. It was first approved by the FDA in the year 2000. It's been used overseas for decades before that. But tonight, the approval is on pause because of a case brought by a group of conservative Christian lawyers with a history of failed lawsuits targeting transgender student athletes. One month ago, one month ago, those lawyers on behalf of anti-abortion organizations and doctors argued to the U.S. District Judge Matthew Kaczmarek that the FDA lacked the authority to approve Mifeprestone and did not adequately study its safety and efficacy. They argued that the drug was not properly vetted when it was approved Nearly 23 years ago, they argued that the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, did not have the power to approve this drug, which begs the question of who does if they don't. They urged Judge Kaczmarek to revoke the FDA's approval of the drug, which has been used by millions of people across the country in the past two decades, safely, I might add. They asked him to order that the drug be pulled from shelves nationally, whether temporarily or permanently. They wanted access to a drug that is used in more than half of all abortions across this country. The drug that is safer than pills like Tylenol and Viagra ended, terminated, revoked. The anti-abortion movement has been attacking the FDA's approval of Mifeprestone for more than 20 years. They've been dreaming of this kind of intervention for decades, and tonight they got it, or at least the first taste of it. In part, Judge Kaczmarek released his ruling just a few hours ago. The judge ruled tonight that the FDA's approval of Mifeprestone in 2000 was wrong. He's temporarily invalidated that approval from 20 plus years ago. So as of tonight, this judge says Mifeprestone is no longer FDA approved for nationwide distribution. The judge has also decided that his order will not go into effect for another seven days from now, giving the conservative Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and the United States Supreme Court the opportunity to stay Kazmarek's order. The Biden White House has long indicated that it would promptly appeal any ruling that reverses Mifeprestone's FDA approval. And tonight, just before airtime, Attorney General Merrick Garland issued this statement, quote, the Justice Department strongly disagrees with the decision and will be appealing the court's decision and seeking a stay pending appeal. The department is committed to protecting Americans access to legal reproductive care, end quote. So we're going to watch to see how the Biden administration responds to this ruling tonight. But a judge in Washington may just, Washington state, may just have provided another route for Mifeprestone to reach the Supreme Court quickly. Tonight, that federal judge, same level and rank as the judge in Texas, issued an injunction 
prohibiting the FDA from removing mifeprestone from the market in 18 states. Now, that ruling is in direct conflict with the ruling from Judge Kaczmarek in Texas. So where do we go from here? As the whole country grapples with this major access issue, what does the FDA do now? What does the federal government do now? And I know just who to ask. Joining us now are Minnie Timuraju, the president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, and Laura Jarrett, NBC News senior correspondent. Minnie and Laura, thanks for joining us tonight. Laura, let me just start with you. We've just had this response uh, from the Department of Justice. And even before we had that, we have this thing that we don't normally see. On the same day, minutes yeah. uh, apart from each other, yeah. competing rulings that are um, applicable to the same agency. Yes, and arguably in conflict, but perhaps not in conflict everywhere. That's one of right. the issues is how is the FDA supposed to abide by both of these rulings? Kazmarek obviously put his out first, essentially saying the FDA, you do not have the authority to do this. I'm putting it on hold. However... I'm not going to give the plaintiffs exactly what they wanted, because what they wanted was a nationwide injunction immediately. And so instead, he's saying, I'm going to give the Justice Department a little bit of time to get its ducks in a row and try to go to the Fifth Circuit, the Court of Appeals, and try to get my order put on hold. So as of right now, people should understand this drug is still in circulation. It's not being removed from the market. I think it's important for our audience to understand that. However, as you pointed out, then a different judge just minutes later says, no, 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 no wait a minute, actually, the drug should stay in circulation. It should maintain the status quo. So, for instance, what happens if in eight days from now, Judge Kaczmarek in mm-hmm. Texas, his order actually goes into effect? So in a place like, for instance, Illinois, which is a party to the Washington lawsuit, what is the FDA supposed to do? How is it supposed to comply with both of those orders? And that's why the Justice Department is, this case is almost immediately headed to the Supreme Court, because it's going to have to reconcile these things. Uh, Minnie, I I want to just ask the practical question first, because one can't pre-plan an abortion, but one can pre-plan to have mifeprestone. Should people be getting it now? Should they be talking to their doctors and, and hanging on to it? It is a particularly safe drug. I do pre-plan my Tylenol stocking in my house. You know, Americans should be pre-planning their, their reproductive health care. Absolutely. Stock up on Plan B the morning after pill. But yes, on Mifepristone. In fact, Washington State, in anticipation of this, uh, they filed that case. Uh, their AG, they've been stockpiling Mifepristone too. It's an important point, Allie, because look, in these times, you need to make sure you're ready and you're prepared to protect yourself. And we know Mifepristone has been safe for over two decades. It's uh, safer than Tylenol. And it's been a critical way to get very safe access to abortion care, regardless of where you're at. But I think the most important thing that I want to make sure folks understand about this case is this was an effort at a backdoor national abortion ban. Opponents of abortion have not been able to pass a national abortion ban. Supreme Court could only ban abortion in states that were willing to do so. And this was a way for them to get an abortion access, the most popular, effective, and safe way, safe abortion access in all 50 states. You pointed that out. It's very alarming. And it is the core issue, I think, at, at this moment. Laura, what's the what's the reasoning behind the argument that the FDA doesn't have the authority to approve this drug? I I thought the FDA has authority. It's really to more drugs. that they went about it the wrong way. It's not right. that the FDA doesn't have the authority to approve, dr- approve drugs. It does that every day. And I don't think that the plaintiffs, I don't think their argument is really that. I think their argument is more you didn't take into account the safety concerns that we have asserted. And the judge has bought into that wholesale. This mm-hmm. opinion is chalk through of language that makes it very clear the judge is totally on their side in that regard um, on that issue and a number of other issues. Um, but obviously, the Justice Department 
government has put forth a litany of evidence to suggest that this drug is safe um, and effective. And it has said, basically, you don't get to second guess the FDA's authority on that. Um, Again, this has never been done before. It has never been the case that a federal judge has essentially told the FDA what to do about a drug that it thinks is safe over the objections of the FDA. Interestingly enough, uh, Minnie, the FDA doesn't take other countries' research when it comes to uh, drugs. It conducts its own research on every drug that is released. But this drug, I I believe, was uh, invented in France in maybe I'm making this up, but 1980 or something. It's been a long, long time, and it is widely used across uh, Europe. And its efficacy and safety have both been uh, heavily researched and proved. Yes, there are extensive trials when this was first introduced in the United States. Um, the reason why, and you pointed it out in your intro, this case finally got airtime with Matthew Kaczmarek. He is a Trump-appointed judge. He is an extremist with ties to extremely conservative evangelical organizations like Liberty Institute. This organization, as you said, they created a, a new organization in Amarillo just to get in front of him because there have been efforts for decades to undermine the FDA's authority here. But it's been tested. It's been trialed. It's been on the market for two, over two decades. So look, at the end of the day, that may have not been the intent of the of the of the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, the organization that was made up to file this case to undermine the FDA. But it's so important to note that that is exactly what would happen. And even if you don't care about abortion, and we know the majority of Americans do care abortion and are with us on this issue, including 49% of Republicans are with us and wanting to see medication abortion approved. Even if you don't care about abortion, the fact that this would undermine decades of FDA authority is chilling and should affect every single American. Everyone should be outraged. We've seen really strong statements from the DOJ, the president, the vice president, the Democrats in Congress. And I think it's really important to note that Dem AGs and Dem governors are already saddled up and ready to fight. Uh, and it's going to be really critical what happens in the next couple of weeks. Right. The damn AGs are the ones who actually brought that case um, right. in Washington. Laura, I don't like to wade into your lane, but there was something interesting <laughs> that the judge said, um, Judge Kaczmarek. He said the FDA has faced significant political pressure to, quote, increase access to chemical abortion, what we're calling uh, medication abortion. Uh, it's almost like he was saying part of his ruling was to give the FDA cover from the what he says is the pressure that they are uh, facing to increase access. I'd like to see his evidence. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know how that works. Uh, it's interesting. You know, a lot of these arguments are not even arguments that the plaintiffs groups made. Right. You know, it, at the hearing on this weeks ago, he was almost offering right. different arguments, uh, ways to knock this down that the groups themselves hadn't even put forth. Um, it, it, it's just interesting how much um, sort of advocacy you saw um, from the judge on, on yeah. some of these issues. Um, obviously, he would say, look, I'm the judge and I've, I think I got the law right. doesn't matter if the plaintiffs got the argument wrong. But typically, the plaintiffs have to be the one to raise the issue in the first That's instance. That's why I thought that was judge. strange. He was sort of offering them uh, a sort of a fig leaf. Uh, many without Fipresstone, there's there's a second drug. It's generally given in a two-drug cocktail uh, for for slightly different purposes. Mifepristone was initially approved for a different purpose when it was first invented. Without the access to Mifepristone, the second drug can still work. Tell me about that, its efficacy, and why it hasn't been targeted the same way. Yeah, actually, we were surprised it hasn't been targeted the same way. And I think we should be worried and paying attention to make sure it's not uh, up next. But misoprostol is the second drug. Uh, you can have an all misoprostol uh, protocol for abortion. Um, it is 
definitely still available. And we want to make sure folks know that they can request that drug as well. The same way you said folks can go out and reach out to their doctors about making sure they have access to mifepristone, particularly in the next week. That being said, we believe firmly Americans and doctors and providers should have the right to provide any kind of medication abortion or any kind of abortion care that is legally required, that is legally allowed. Mifepristone is the most popular because the Mifepristone and misoprostol cocktail, as you said, uh, is frankly the most, um, it's the easiest. It is the least painful. It is the least, it is the, it is the most comfortable for the majority of patients, if that makes sense. And it is the preferred protocol by the majority of providers. So look, technically, yes, you can still get a medication abortion care after this decision, should there not be a stay. That being said, we should have the right to have access to the best protocol for us, for our bodies, for that our providers want us to have. And this is the most popular procedure, the most popular care in abortion care, over 50%. And the fact that it's being taken away in this manner is, frankly, a threat to abortion care and a threat to reproductive freedom. And the nature of this case and the fact that it got in front of this one specific judge in this very, very problematic way is an overall uh, indictment on our courts and overall uh, raises a lot of questions about judicial ethics that we're going to dig into with our friends in Congress in the next coming weeks. I just think it's worth noting, it's not just about abortions. Mifepristone is used to manage miscarriages, mm-hmm. right? And so it's it sort of, these decisions sort of expose the slippery line between how right. we talk about abortions and how we talk about managing miscarriages. But we talked to doctors leading up to when we thought this decision might come out weeks ago, and one of them told me, look, like, more women are going to die as a result of this because you can't manage abortions properly. You get infections, you get sepsis. We've all seen the horror stories. And so it's just worth noting, I think, you know, for the judge, this is um, he's obviously couching it in the terms of abortion and certainly how these groups have styled it and certainly what they're interested in. Uh, But for many, many women who have taken Mifepristone to manage miscarriages, this is this is disrupts their access. Well, all through a big block of states in the south, uh, a miscarriage now makes every Every woman and their doctor fear that they might get prosecuted if they're having a miscarriage. There are women who won't seek the care for a miscarriage because they're worried that there's someone looking to prosecute them. And doctors who won't prescribe the drugs because they're worried about getting sued. It is a slippery slope. Thanks to both of you, Uh, Mimi Tamarajo and Laura Jarrett. uh, Thanks for making time this evening for us. All right, we've got a lot more to get to tonight, including why some Republicans are feeling regret and alarm after seeing what happens to their party when they dig in on taking away reproductive freedom. Plus, two black lawmakers expelled from the Tennessee House yesterday get a visit today from the vice president, Kamala Harris. More on that just ahead. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity set up chores, and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. 
The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. When Republicans gathered in January for their first party meeting since their big red wave for the midterms became a big red puddle, they adopted this resolution, quote, affirming the Republican National Committee's commitment to life, end quote. They specifically gave this prescription for the next election cycle, quote, go on uh, offense in the 2024 election cycle and expose the Democrats' extreme position of supporting abortion on demand, end quote. Go on offense. Now, that marching order might come as a surprise to anyone who thinks that the Republican-induced fall of Roe v. Wade is the force that shook the 2022 midterm elections. But regardless, Republicans resolved to double down with more anti-abortion legislation, more anti-abortion candidates. This week, one lawmaker in Idaho described what that posture looks like for the actual humans, including voters in her state's which just banned out-of-state travel for abortion for minors. I think my mom would say that she paid it forward, all that she and my dad did for us, and I want to do that for my grandkids. But I can't encourage my two daughters to settle in Idaho with the laws we have on the books. Um, I would be terrified to have my daughters try to carry a pregnancy here. Uh, This is not a safe place to be pregnant. I think this statute is tearing families apart. Fueling that lawmaker's concern about being able to be there both for her aging parents and her future grandchildren was Idaho's new law creating a crime called abortion trafficking. It means that if you help a person younger than 18 years old travel for an abortion procedure or to pick up abortion medication without permission from a parent or guardian, you could face jail time. If you're an aunt or an uncle or a grandmother trying to help your pregnant relative, you could go to jail. Today in Texas, a woman is burying her premature daughter. After only 33 weeks of pregnancy, 20 weeks into her pregnancy, the woman learned that her fetus had a fatal condition. The brain and skull would never develop. The baby would not survive long after birth. Her doctor told her, well, because of the new law, you don't have any options. You have to go on with your pregnancy. Her newborn died just four hours after being born. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis is expected to soon sign a six-week abortion ban after the state Senate approved the bill this week, despite fierce public opposition. The chamber had to pause debate on the bill for about 10 minutes as protesters screamed, people will die. And that's just the thing. Even just in the state of Florida, this kind of legislation is not popular. Most Floridians disapprove of the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision. Recent polling shows 64% of Americans believe abortion should be legal in most cases. Voters largely back abortion rights. Just take a look at the Wisconsin Supreme Court election this Tuesday. Liberal-aligned Judge Janet Protosiewicz trounced her more conservative uh, opponent in a race of the open seat on the state's highest court. Protosiewicz has been outspoken about her support for abortion rights. Her defeated opponent expressed his opposition to abortion, He lost by 11 points. As Michelle Goldberg writes in a new piece for The New York Times titled The Abortion Ban Backlash is Starting to Freak Out Republicans, quote, you can't message away forced birth. Republicans' political problem is twofold. Their supporters take the party's position on abortion seriously. And now, post-Roe, so does everyone else, end quote. 
Joining us now is the New York Times columnist and MSNBC contributor, Michelle Goldberg. Michelle, it is great to see you. Thank you for being with us tonight. Let's just uh, first just talk about what's happened in in uh, Amarillo, Texas, this federal judge, uh, Judge Kazimarek's ruling, which seems to uh, it, it was political in the way it was brought. The, the, the group who brought it formed themselves in Amarillo, where there's only one federal judge happens to be this guy. Everything about his background suggests how he would have ruled on this thing. And even in the ruling, he seemed to be giving cover to the plaintiffs that they weren't looking for. It's a shocking ruling. I also think that, you know, I learned about the Comstock Act in school, the Comstock Act, the law that brought Margaret Sanger, the law that Margaret Sanger was arrested under, the law that was used to ban books by D.H. Lawrence. I think it's worth noting that the that a good part of his ruling is about imposing the Comstock Act, a law that kind of people didn't bother to repeal because they basically assumed that it had become a de- dead letter post Roe v. Wade. And so, yeah, this is, I also think it's a reminder that Nobody in this country under a post-Dobbs regime, it doesn't matter if you live in the bluest city, in the bluest state, your access to reproductive rights are not secure. And that's mm-hmm. what this ruling uh, aims to do, right? I mean, the abortion pill is already banned in many, many states in the country. It's already banned in Texas. They want to pull it off the shelves, you know, in New York, in California, in every state in the union. And what we've seen in a lot of these post-Dobbs elections is the issue has been most dispositive in swing states, in places like Michigan and Wisconsin, where the election outcomes are, are really going to sway abortion laws in immediate ways. But people in, you know, again, in New York, in California also need to be really cognizant of what's happening. Yeah. So when you think about Michigan and, and the the victory of the uh, three, uh, the four Democrats at the at the highest level in that state, so much of that was about the fact that they had a, a ballot measure, a positive ballot measure and enshrining abortion rights. But there was also a lot of election denial stuff. So it's not quite sure and not quite clear what motivated what. But look at the ballot measure starting in Kansas um, last year, where no matter who put the ballot measure on, what side of the equation you were on, people responded the same way whether you were in a liberal or conservative state. Folks don't want this stuff. Kansas, Montana. Yeah. No, Kansas, Montana, Kentucky. I mean, over and over and over again, these ballot initiatives, when they are put to a straight up or down vote, the American people overwhelmingly want abortion to be safe. I mean, the problem is that Republicans largely do not. I mean, Republicans don't overwhelmingly approve of the Dobbs decision. But, you know, you said before 64 percent of Americans want abortion to be legal in all or most circumstances. That same poll showed that 63 percent of Republicans don't Don't. want abortion to be legal in all or most circumstances. So this is why you have a party that is, um, you know, sort of confused hostage to the base it's nurtured for 50 years now. So let's talk about that. Ann Coulter, I, I want to do a sort of a, a, a then and now. When Roe uh, fell, Ann Coulter uh, made a, a comment that said, outside of the media, no one seems especially bothered by the decision. She's now put out a statement after Wisconsin to say the demand for anti-abortion legislation just cost Republicans another crucial race. Pro-lifers, we won. Abortion is not a constitutional right anymore. Please stop pushing strict limits on abortion or there will be no Republicans left. It's an interesting comment. I mean, I don't pull up a lot of Ann Coulter tweets on this show to make a point, but but even uh, influential, influential conservative standard bearers like her are saying your strategy is wrong. 
Right. And it's not just Ann Coulter, right? It's also the Wall Street Journal editorial board. Various other socially conservative figures are starting to say we cannot get elected under these circumstances. But the problem is, of course, that the reason that the anti-abortion movement has crusaded against Roe versus Wade for almost 50 years was not because they thought it was egregious as a matter of constitutional law. It's because they wanted to do what they are doing now. And I think that that's maybe what some Republicans who were kind of happy to harness all of that passion when it helped them, you know, didn't realize that that they were serious. They really intended to do what they are doing all across this country. So let's talk about that. Uh, uh, Lindsey Graham talked about introducing a bill for a 15 week abortion ban at a federal level. Interestingly, Mitch McConnell came out afterwards and said, I think most members of my conference prefer that this be dealt with at the state level. Now, that may be Mitch McConnell reading tea leaves about the 64 percent of Americans um, who don't support abortion, even though 63 percent of Republicans, uh, sorry, who who don't support abortion restrictions, while 63 percent of Republicans do. Uh, At the same time, this whole let the states deal with thing, uh, deal with it stuff hasn't worked out all that well uh, throughout the, the, the southeast of this country. You have basically a block of states where abortion is effectively impossible to get. Effectively impossible to get. And, you know, as you showed, even in some of these earlier stories, even when the pregnancy is medically is medically yes. futile, right, even when the woman's health or even life are endangered. I mean, it's really striking that. Tennessee just recently, you know, under kind of because there's been so many horror stories, they tried to pass these very, very narrow exemptions to its total abortion ban. And it got stripped down so much under the pressure of the anti-abortion movement. You know, first they took out something that would have allowed you to have an abortion when the pregnancy was doomed. They took out rape and incest. Eventually, they ended up passing this ridiculous law that basically said, if you perform an abortion to save someone's life, you can use that as a defense in court, right? I mean, this is, you know, no one is going to want wow. to treat a woman in crisis under these circumstances. But, um, right, that's that's the regime that we're in. And if that's not what anti-abortion activists intended, they have trifectas in many of these states, right? There's nothing to stop them from amending these laws, but they don't want to do that. Michelle, it's an important uh, column that you've written. Thank you for being with us tonight. Michelle Goldberg. Thank you. Uh, we appreciate your time. All right, let's, uh, lots more to get to tonight. Coming up, Clarence Thomas's taste for luxury vacations aboard yachts and private planes provided by a GOP mega donor is raising new questions about gifts that Supreme Court justices are required to disclose. But first, two black lawmakers ousted by Tennessee's state house over gun reform protests, now a symbol for the fight for democracy in this country. They might not be gone for long. We'll explain up next. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. 
Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. It's been just 24 hours since Republicans in the Tennessee House of Representatives voted to expel two black members over their participation in a protest for gun safety at the Tennessee Capitol. But already the move has sparked a national uproar and a show of support for the two ousted lawmakers. Today, President Biden invented, uh, invited the Tennessee lawmakers to the White House as Vice President Kamala Harris made a surprise visit to Nashville to show support for the two ex-members of the Tennessee legislature and a third white member who's mi- who missed being ousted by a single vote. They understood the importance, these three, of standing to say that people will not be silenced. To say that a democracy hears the cries, hears the pleas, who hears the demands of its people, who say the children should be able to live and be safe and go to school and not be in fear. Support is literally flooding in from across the country. Senator Chris Murphy, a noted supporter of gun safety advocacy, says he's already raised over $400,000 to help reelect the two men in the special election to fill their vacated seats. Under Tennessee law, the county governments in the districts represented by those expelled lawmakers will now get to appoint interim members to serve in the Tennessee House. Already, a majority of members on the Nashville Metro Council have vowed to use their power to try and reappoint the ousted member Justin Jones, who represents that county. And leaders in Shelby County, Tennessee, say they're uh, exploring whether they can reappoint the ousted member Justin Pearson as well. But one of the expelled lawmakers says Republicans are already considering refusing to seat the lawmakers if they are reappointed. The question is, will they seat us? Because, you know, we've heard from the other side that they may not seat us, even if our council appoints it, even if we win a special election, that they won't even allow us to be seated. And so then we'll see another affront to democracy uh, that we saw with Julian Bond, you know, when he was a young man in, in Georgia, when they refused, the legislature refused to seat him. Um, and so, you know, I don't know what to expect from this body, but I hope that the nation sees and it, it, the alarm is, is blaring loud because if it can happen in Tennessee, it can happen anywhere. Can happen in Tennessee. It can happen anywhere. Joining us now is Hendrell Remus. He is the chair of the Tennessee Democratic Party. He's the first black person to hold that position in Tennessee. Mr. Remus, thanks for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me, Ali. Are you a little surprised at the reaction you're getting from across the country? I understand your your counterpart in Wisconsin called you and said, uh, we're going to we're going to help. And they're even going to help you raise money to uh, to get these two reelected. Absolutely. Uh, And the outpouring of support has come from every state uh, in the nation. It has come from sitting governors and uh, state party chairs. It has come from elected officials at all levels of government uh, who recognize what we're facing here in Tennessee. Talk to me about the conversation you had, for instance, with the, the head of the party in Wisconsin. Uh, we, we talked about some of the some of the difficulties uh, that 
the Tennessee legislature has endowed upon the people of our state. We also talked about some of the opportunities that we have uh, to make a difference across Tennessee. We are actually, uh, in about 10 days, we will begin a trial uh, on our redistricting of our state house and state senate maps. Uh, where We also had a conversation about some of the uh, ongoing issues that representatives have faced inside of the state legislature. So we talked about a litany of issues. The, the, the redistricting matter is actually an interesting one because you have some real representation issues in Tennessee, which result in the kind of legislature that you have right now. Tell me about what this what this case is and how it could make a difference for this type of movement, this type of groundswell of people who want their elected representatives to do their their billing, their will, their bidding to fulfill their will. Well, after after Republicans gerrymandered the maps in Tennessee last year, we vowed to challenge them in state courts because we felt that they would be illegal. Uh, rightfully so, they were illegal. Uh, we had a successful uh, beginning stage of uh, that litigation where the state Senate maps were struck down. Uh, the state appealed it to the state Supreme Court, asked for the entire case to be dismissed. The state Supreme Court upheld it and uh, sent it to trial that will begin in, in just 10 days. In pre-trial hearings, the state asked again for the case to be dismissed, but a chancery court uh, denied the request as well. So we feel good about the merits of the case uh, and, 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 and the, the bounds of what it, uh, what it represents. Uh, it was a clear violation of Tennessee state law uh, that really specifies how redistricting should take place. Uh, we didn't sue based on racial or political gerrymandering. We sued based on a clear violation and illegal gerrymandering of the state maps. And I think we're going to be very successful uh, once this uh, litigation and once this trial reps in this litigation uh, is over with. So you did not sue on the basis of racial gerrymandering. Race seems to be playing a part in this, though. There were three members who uh, were vote whose expulsion was voted on. Two of them got expelled. One missed being expelled by one vote. And she made a comment as she walked out when asked about that. She said, maybe it's because of the color of my skin. Uh, the two black members got expelled. What do you make of that? Well, obviously, I think the general public will be able to decide for themselves after the hearings yesterday. I think Republicans left that question lingering. Was this racially driven? But if you look at some of the issues that we faced in Tennessee, uh, during Black History Month, uh, we had representatives who were wanting to strip uh, uh, John Lewis's name off of a street sign and replace it uh, with Donald Trump Boulevard. Hmm. Uh, we had those same representatives uh, offering up lynching as a way for people to be executed in the state. Uh, in this same uh, legislative general body, this general assembly, uh, we had the sitting speaker of the House having a public meltdown with the former Democratic caucus chair about whether or not uh, he was racist or whether or not there were race-based issues happening inside of the state legislature. So there has been a history uh, of racial overtones that I think the public is beginning to galvanize around and say something's not right here. I want to just play something that Justin Jones said on um, on Meet the Press now. It's interesting because he uh, his his speech in the legislature went viral. And I think that uh, may have helped the cause, the way in which he presented the case. But listen to what he said on Meet the Press now. I ran for office as someone who spent 10 years doing community organizing. I was one of the youngest lawmakers, the youngest black lawmaker, trying to represent my generation. And they and they told me that, you know, basically that I'm uppity, that, you know, that you need to humble yourself. I, I said, I'm not coming here as an intern. I'm coming here as a legislator, a, a colleague, an equal. 
It's an interesting point he makes, uh, but this generational issue is interesting, right? The idea that these are young people who grew up with these gun drills and, and active shooter drills and things like that, who are angry about what happened in Tennessee. And, and they seem to be more in sync with the public than the legislature in general does. Absolutely. I agree. Uh, you can, we can see that by the outpouring of support and the protesters who showed up at the Tennessee state capitol and peacefully protested. They didn't come there to break the law. They came there to make sure that they could help change the law to, to save their own lives. Uh, look, in the state legislature, uh, these representatives, they are no stranger to Justin Jones. Uh, they know that he has been standing up uh, in that same building, uh, fighting as an activist, trying to move the needle for folks all across Tennessee. Uh, for years. Uh, so they are no stranger to Justin Jones, and they know that he's outspoken. They knew when he got there that he would be a voice for constant change, and he has he has continued to do that. And as the chair of our state party, that makes me proud to be a Democrat in the South because we need more people standing up. Uh, there were Confederate statues in our state Capitol building. They're no longer there because of the persistence and the standing up of, of Justin Jones. And we have to applaud that and recognize that. So he came there fighting a racist mm. element uh, that existed in Tennessee. Hendrell Remus, thanks for joining us tonight. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Ali. All right. Coming up, the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is speaking out over a report detailing the luxury gifts he accepted from a longtime friend, a friend who also happens to be a major GOP donor. Why his defense is raising more questions about the ethical standards placed on the nation's highest court. That's just ahead. Stay with us. When a trio of reporters from the investigative news outlet ProPublica published a blockbuster story detailing the frequent luxury trips that the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has been making for years, courtesy of a Republican billionaire, those reporters were making a big advance on a story we sort of already knew. Back in 2004, the L.A. Times published a front page article listing some of the many gifts that Justice Thomas had been receiving from his pal Harlan Crow at the time, including a $19,000 Bible once owned by Frederick Douglass and at least one free trip abroad aboard a private jet to the exclusive Bohemian Grove Club in Northern California. When the L.A. Times wrote the story, Justice Thomas refused to comment on it. But yesterday, responding to ProPublica's amazing work, the L.A. Times reported that their 2004 story apparently had an impact. After it was published, Justice Thomas stopped disclosing gifts. All gifts. I was almost 20 years ago, and today, reacting to the ProPublica article, Justice Thomas explained why. He said, quote, Early in my tenure at the court, I sought guidance from my colleagues and others in the judiciary and was advised that this sort of personal hospitality from close personal friends who did not have business before the court was not reportable. I've endeavored to follow that counsel throughout my tenure and have always sought to comply with the disclosure guidelines, end quote. Now, for someone who calls himself an originalist, this is a stretch. While it's true that the Supreme Court justices are not required to follow a code of conduct, they do have a disclosure requirement. Besides, he's saying he accepted all those expensive, luxurious gifts, including a $500,000 trip to Indonesia and yearly summer retreats at Harlan Crow's Lakefront Resort in New York without disclosing them because they qualify as hospitality. 
I'm sure someone in his legal circle can look up the definition of hospitality and argue that the justice has a point. But what about this? Quote, flight records from the Federal Aviation Administration and Flight Aware suggest that Thomas makes regular use of Crow's plane. The jet often follows a pattern from its home base in Dallas to Washington Dulles Airport for a brief stop, then on to a destination that Thomas is visiting and back again. Twice in recent years, the jet has followed the pattern when Thomas appeared at Crow's Properties in Dallas, once for the January 4th, 2018 swearing-in of Fifth Circuit Judge James Ho at Crow's private library, and again for a conservative think tank conference that Crow hosted last May. Even under the most far-fetched interpretation of the word, that's not hospitality. That is someone using someone else's private jet for personal use. And the most shocking part of it all is that Justice Thomas has been able to get away with it for so long, which brings me to another thing that he said today. Quote, these guidelines are now being changed as the committee of the judicial conference responsible for financial disclosure for the entire federal judiciary just this past month announced new guidance. End quote. That's right. And the new guidance in a wink wink to Justice Thomas says that personal hospitality does not include, quote, gifts other than food, lodging or entertainment, such as transportation that substitutes for commercial transportation. And it explicitly states that stays at property or facilities owned by an entity like the private resorts that Thomas frequents must be disclosed, even if they are owned wholly or in part by an individual, end quote. Our friends at Slate raised a really good question about this, and that question is whether, quote, this new guidance captures Thomas's conduct for the first time ever, or if it merely bolds, italicizes, and underlines what should have already been obvious. And that's the real issue here, that this should have been obvious to a Supreme Court justice. And while it's unclear whether Thomas has violated any law or regulation by accepting such gifts and not disclosing them, I've got two distinct fears. One is that Thomas understands he's wrong and he was just trying to hide what he did. Or two, which is actually my bigger fear, is that he's not wrong. And what he's been doing could just be business as usual at the court we got one more story for you tonight about a potential Democratic challenger to Joe Biden in the 2024 presidential race, one that Trump advisor Steve Bannon is reportedly excited about. That's up next. When Donald Trump became the first former president to be indicted on criminal charges this week, he also became the only declared 2024 presidential candidate under indictment. Still too soon to say how all this legal peril is going to affect his chances in the GOP primary, where he faces the likes of former North Carolina governor and U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley and the Arkansas governor Asa Hutchinson, and perhaps even former friend turned nemesis Florida governor Ron DeSantis. On the Democratic side, President Biden is expected to seek another time, term in office. The self-help, uh, self-help author Marianne Williamson has announced that she's running as a Democrat after failing to win the nomination in 2020. And this week, amid all of Donald Trump's legal drama, President Biden gained another challenger. It is, drum roll please, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the son of the former New York senator and former attorney general Robert F. Kennedy, the nephew of President John F. Kennedy, and a notorious vaccine conspiracy theorist. Today, RFK Jr. teased that he will formally announce his run on April 19th in Boston after filing his statement of candidacy with the FEC earlier this week. 
Just two years ago, he was banned from Instagram for spreading misinformation about coronavirus vaccines. And two years before that, before the coronavirus pandemic, his family members denounced his role in the anti-vaccine movement and its attempts to link vaccines to autism. The conspiracies that RFK Jr. has pushed have been debunked by researchers across the world, but his fervent skepticism of vaccines has gained him one big-name supporter on the right. According to reporting from CBS's News' Robert Costa, Steve Bannon had been encouraging this for months and believes RFK Jr. could be both a useful chaos agent in the 2024 race and a big name who could help stoke anti-vax sentiment around the country. So the road to 2024 just got a little longer. That does it for us tonight. Alex is back next week. You can catch me this weekend on my show, 10 a.m. Eastern. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.